Hello and welcome to Building Local Power, a podcast dedicated to thought-provoking conversations about how we can challenge corporate monopolies and expand the power of people to shape their own future. I'm Jess Delfiaco, the host of Building Local Power and Communications Manager here at the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. For more than 45 years, ILSR has worked to build thriving, equitable communities where power, wealth, and accountability remain in local hands. And hello, today we have some great guests. Joining me is ILSR's Linda Bilson-Sprolis, who works with our composting program, and Amanda Cather, who's the project director of the Million Acre Challenge. We're going to talk a lot about Amanda's work today with the Million Acre Challenge, which focuses on the importance of improving soil health on America's farmland. So welcome to the show, both of you. Thank you. Thanks. Great to be here. Yeah. Linda, do you want to start us off with any further context before we jump into things? Sure. Thanks, Jess. So great to be back on BLP and to have Amanda joining us. So for those of you out there who who don't know who I am, I am, as Jess mentioned, uh, part of the composting initiative. And this Million Acre Challenge, which you'll be hearing a lot more about throughout this episode, is something that's really near and dear to me because it gets to why I got into composting to begin with. Composting is a tool to support more resilient and sustainable food systems. And so the Million Acre Challenge is an initiative that ILSR has been part of the founding core team of organizations that have helped to launch this program over the last few years. Um, and really over the last year, it's the rubber has been hitting the road, if you will, in due large part to Amanda's great leadership. Um, But just to give context for ILSR's involvement in this collaborative, we represent the composting piece of the regenerative food system puzzle. The project is currently focused primarily on Maryland, but of course you can't focus just on one state. It's, you know, broader than that, which I'm sure Amanda will get to. But our belief is that you can't have a regenerative food system without closing the loop from farm to table and back to the farm again, which is where compost comes in. And we'll get into it, but There are lots of symptoms of like a broken food system that I think focusing on regenerative agriculture really helps to remedy and composting is a tool for getting organic matter back into the soil and sort of closing the loop. We throw away so much food, like a good chunk of the food that is ever produced in the U.S. doesn't ever get consumed. And there's lots of other symptoms of of a broken food system that... I think we're we're trying to remedy and soil health as a tool for building more resilient food systems is what I'm hoping that we'll get at and more resilient communities as a result. So glad to have this conversation going. So maybe we could hear more about the Million Acre Challenge from, from Amanda's perspective. Yeah, great. Thank you. And really excited to be here. ILSR, as you mentioned, Linda is one of our, the Million Acre Challenge's founding partners. So it's it's really a privilege to get to talk to your audience and be involved at this level. I really appreciate it. So again, as you mentioned, the Million Acre Challenge is a collaborative effort to advance soil health and regenerative agriculture on 1 million acres of agricultural land in Maryland and to catalyze change towards regenerative agriculture across the Chesapeake region. And the goal is to do all of that by 2030. So we are, our goal really is to challenge all kinds of producers that would be row crop producers, livestock producers, diversified vegetable producers, urban, rural, suburban, peri-urban to start wherever they are and take the next right step for their operations to improve the health of their soils. And 
the reason that we really focus on soil health is because we know that healthy soils are the foundation of regenerative agriculture. And we're hearing a lot about regenerative agriculture lately. And the way that we define it is there's a definition that was published in a paper by Guidelight Strategies and sponsored by Patagonia that we really like. And it's a system of land stewardship rooted in centuries old indigenous wisdom that provides healthy, nutrient-rich food for all people while continuously restoring and nourishing the ecological, social, and cultural systems unique to every place. So we really love that, that definition of regenerative agriculture and you know, really see healthy soils as the foundation of that system, recognizing that they have all kinds of co-benefits, including increased profitability and resilience for the farmer. And that can mean increased independence from reliance on purchased inputs, which is important ecological improvements and ecosystem services, including enhanced biodiversity, reduced erosion, water quality improvements, and potentially reductions in emissions of carbon and other greenhouse gases and possibly even sequestration. And so we are really looking at emphasizing the four main principles of healthy soils management, which include keeping soil covered, minimizing harmful chemical, biological, and physical disturbance, maximizing biodiversity, and keeping a living root in the soil year round. So there's lots of practices that express these principles. So the route to healthy soil is going to look different on every farm, but our goal is really to get every farm on the pathway to healthy soils and regenerative production. You have different working groups kind of set up to tackle this mission in different ways. Could you talk about some of those different approaches? Yeah, and I think it's important for me to point out that the Million Acre Challenge itself isn't isn't just one organization. So it's a movement that's really bigger than any one organization, one farm, one person. It was founded by six founding partners, including ILSR, Chesapeake Bay Foundation, Future Harvest, Fair Farms, which is our product project of Waterkeepers Chesapeake, the Institute for Energy and Environmental Research, and the Hatcher Group. And it was founded as a result of a Heroic Futures grant from the Town Creek Foundation. So really looking at a vision for the food system that goes beyond, you know, one change, but really looks at the changing the, the food system and the agricultural production overall. We've also built partnership with farmers and farm service organizations across the state and into the region. And we're lucky to also have an incredible board of soil stewards. That's our, our boss, compo- composed of farmers who are soil health leaders to help us guide and shape the challenge. So it's a, it's a big collaborative effort to move us in that direction. And because soil health is complex, it's, it's, natu- it's an ecological system. So thinking about it requires holistic approach. So we're approaching this goal of challenging farmers to build healthy soil from five viewpoints that you, as you mentioned, are represented in our five working groups. So our science working group, the idea right now, our main initiative is bringing the PASA Sustainable Agriculture Soil Health Benchmark Study to Maryland. And we're working there with 30 farms, including organic and conventional diversified veg farms, livestock farms, row crop farms, using the Cornell Comprehensive Assessment of Soil Health to connect chemical, biological, and physical soil health indicators to farm management practice records. And the goal there is to really start to see the impacts of different types of management on soil health. So how does tillage really affect soil health? How does synthetic chemical use really affect soil health? How does the use of carbon amendments, including compost, affect soil health? And looking at the long-term impacts of management on those indicators. And farms get their own results, as well as comparisons to other farms in their cohort. And then PASA designs these beautiful materials that help farmers market their products using their efforts towards soil health. So that's kind of the 
one of the main focuses of our science working group. We're also, of course, looking at trying to assess the impacts of those carbon soil amendments and especially compost on soil health because that's such a big question especially in Maryland where phosphorus is such an is such an issue how can we encourage more farms to use compost to build soil health and close that loop so to improve that that food system cycling and not overload the system with phosphorus as well I don't know if you want to add to that Linda We'll be hosting a webinar series focused on on-farm composting and compost use in the coming months, so later this summer and in the, into the fall, which I'm really excited about because we're going to be tapping some experts in the field to help us answer these questions. But basically right now, which is probably the case in any watershed in the world, but you have some places where there's too much of a good thing and other places that could use it but there's not really great connections between the places that have too much phosphorus and the places that need it, even within the state of Maryland. And so, you know, things like chicken, chicken litter, chicken poultry litter, which we have a lot of on the Eastern shore of Maryland, there's too much phosphorus already in the soils there. But then in the Western part of the state, you have places that farmers still have to buy amendments or make amendments themselves to increase their phosphorus and other, you know, improve their soil in general. So the idea of closing the loop but doing it sustainably and responsibly so that water quality is not impacted is definitely a challenge that we are looking forward to helping to tease apart in Maryland, working with farmers and, and policymakers to do that appropriately, but also so working with farmers who are interested in composting as a way of managing materials that could become wastes on their own farms, but also working with the composting industry, you know, so much food waste is generated in cities and sort of urban centers that it would be, we're also seeing a huge need for creating high quality compost by composting facilities that specialize in that process to create a product for farming, getting it back into the soils. So uh, we're kind of trying to approach it from both supporting farmers that want to compost as a way of managing waste and building their soils and supporting sort of a system that recycles more broadly materials that otherwise get wasted. So, but yes, you'll be hearing more about that this fall. And I, and yeah, and Linda's totally pointing to the, some of the work of another one of our working groups, which is farmer engagement working group, which focuses on helping farmers connect with, with the million acre challenge and with each other and with resources that can help them take that next step for their farm. Um, since we know that farmers work learn best from other farmers through farmer networks, demonstration days, speakers, educational events like the ILSR webinars, bringing information that farmers want to see. And, you know, our approach to our farmer engagement work is focus, is really focusing on what do you want to learn and how do you want to learn it? This is kind of our mantra that we say over and over again, because it's critical for us that we're centering farmer voices and farmer needs across the project. And what's their experience, their wisdom, their needs, and their challenges. Those are the drivers for everything that we're trying to do. So yeah, so that's science and farmer engagement. And the third working group is our business case working group, which is looking into the profitability of some of these healthy soils practices. And that's that's harder than you'd think, because of course in agriculture, it's really difficult to say this result comes from 
this cause because it's an ecological system. So it's very challenging to tease apart the specific costs and benefits of every soil health practice and demonstrate to folks, you know, how does each one of these practices contribute to profitability in your whole system? So that's the work of the business case working group and American Farmland Trust and Soil Health Institute have done some of this work very nicely looking at specific practices like tillage and cover crop use on row crop farms. And so we're trying to see if we can expand that list of practices into a more systematic look at regenerative ag and incorporate livestock and diversified veg production as well. And that is not easy, but it is really important especially as we're looking at trying to figure out when farmers can start to see a return on their investment in regenerative production and think about the ways that they can be trans they can be supported through any transitional period where they might lose yield or they might have challenges until they start to see those benefits. So there's other considerations in that business case too, like the ways that emerging ecosystem services markets might play into farm profitability and how we can try to ensure that those markets are gonna benefit farms of all sizes, including small and mid-sized farmers, and also reward early adopters and folks who are really out there innovating, as well as farmers who might make a change to using one of these practices today or tomorrow. There are folks that have been doing this for 30 years and we feel like they should be rewarded as well. And then there's some benefits you can't put a price tag on in a partial budget analysis, like how do we account for these as a society? So I think for decades, we've externalized a lot of the risk from farming onto the taxpayer. And so reforming our crop insurance and subsidies and financing across the country to ensure that our these systems are really rewarding good stewardship. That's super important at the federal level, but not really what we're working on at the state level. But these are things that we really support. So our policy working group, which is number four, is engaging state lawmakers to listen to farmer voices about the importance of soil health as a really important framework for agricultural conservation and helping farmers get their messages across to policymakers, as well as helping policymakers connect the important issues of their day back to soil health and agriculture. So in that, we're planning a series of in-person farm tours for state lawmakers that are focused on soil health this summer. And we're hoping to work over the next year or so to find funding for the state's Healthy Soils Program that was established in 2017, but was never funded. So we'd really love to see some kind of consistent funding for that program. We also have seats on the state's Soil Health Advisory Committee, and that includes farmers, nonprofits, ag retailers, extension, and other important players in the state. And the goal of that committee right now is to figure out ways that farmers can be incentivized to work on improving their soils for all the reasons we've talked about before. So we're also engaged with the National Healthy Soils Policy Network. And that is a great network that connects organizations from all over the country doing soil health policy at the state level and helps us learn from one another and share our experiences about advocating for farmers and healthy soils for a healthy food system. So that's that's the, the work that we're doing in policy right now. And again, we're moving forward with that. Linda may have more to say about that as well. At this point, we're looking forward to the tours, right? I don't know if you just mentioned that, but that will be the direct line connecting farmers with policymakers so that policymakers can understand what it is to farm in a holistic sort of regenerative way. What does that actually look like in, in real terms? not like conceptually, 
but actually in Maryland on the ground, what are the real benefits of that? What are the real challenges? And really being able to connect uh, those two groups, I think is critical. But then also, of course, the consumer piece, which I know is the final working group, is public outreach. So I really respect the way that the Million Acre Challenge project was set up is to really try to tackle. <laughs> it's a huge undertaking, right, to, to try to shift the way that we view agriculture, the way that we view farmers and taking on kind of more broad, not putting all of the responsibility of everything on the farmer's shoulders, which I feel like farmers just have so much on their shoulders in terms of responsibility. But like as consumers, we need to demand the products. We need to be willing to pay for things that are produced sustainably and regeneratively if we want farmers to be producing things that way. And then there's the policies that need to be in place to support farmers to be even able to make those choices. And then there's also, of course, the financing and the financial support. So it's all very intertwined and very complicated, as Amanda's already alluded to. I don't know if there's anything you want to add to how the public outreach group is helping to tackle the consumer piece of the puzzle. Yeah, I yeah, I think you said it really well, but I, I think it's important to just reemphasize that public outreach, it includes farmers and consumers, and it's all about creating demand. So building demand for healthy soils programming and technical assistance and policy among farmers themselves, and also demands for products like raised in healthy soils among consumers and supply chain partners. So like you said, uh, the key is helping build those incentives for farmers in the marketplace. So consumers who are willing to pay more when they're buying directly from farmers who are farming direct regeneratively, and when they're purchasing from a company that's supporting farmers to use regenerative systems. And then by extension, companies that are willing to help farmers in their supply chain build soil health and transition to regenerative production and that can be, you know, it can take a, a number of different forms. It can be guaranteed contracts, innovative financing, increased prices paid directly to farmers, and the policymakers themselves who are going to support that work. So public outreach is kind of focused on all of those things. And we've been doing a lot of work on messaging to farmers and just beginning to work on our messaging to consumers and how to engage them directly in the project. Those are our five working groups. <laughs> Thank you. That is, yeah, that, that's, you're tackling a lot of different things. <laughs> <laughs> we'll go to the next question in just a moment, but first we're going to take a short break. Thanks for listening to the show. If you're enjoying this conversation, I hope you consider heading over to ILSR.org donate to help support our work. Your donation directly supports this podcast and all the work we do here at ILSR. Visit ILSR.org donate to make a contribution today. Any amount is sincerely appreciated. I wanted to ask you about some of the challenges you're, you face in this work, but, um, and this may or may not be the same question. I also just wanted to, to, to ask you, correct me if I'm wrong, but we've seen for decades a trend of consolidation in the agricultural world. And I was wondering if that plays into the work you're doing at all. I mean, do you see that as something we need to, to change? Do you often work with the big, big, big farms? I mean, yeah, you're totally right about consolidation. And I think, well, in, in Maryland, the average farm size is about 160 acres. So it's there are a lot of very, very small farms in Maryland and a lot of large farms in Maryland. And there's some of those mid-sized farms as well. 
And I think from my perspective, those farmers of the middle are really important. It's very important to recognize that those farms have been left out of a lot of policy work and left out of a lot of consideration. Those are farms that can produce a lot of food and produce a lot of jobs and don't have a lot of support. You know, we have a lot of kind of micro farms who are doing amazing work, maybe not producing enough to feed the region. Aggregation can help with that. And then we have a lot, you know, we have on the other end, these very large scale farms whose main goal is efficiency. And those farmers in the middle, they are the ones that can really balance efficiency and resilience and production and ecological mindset. And I think focusing on those and their real importance to the regions that they are in is critical. So I think you're totally right. And I think Linda touched on one of the biggest challenges, which are, is that there's so many barriers that farmers have to overcome in order for them to take that next right step, like to move in the direction. So it's so easy for us to fill our garden with compost and say, oh, my garden's so healthy, it's so full of worms, why can't farmers just do what I do and get the same results? Or to say, well, the benefits of these practices are so clear and obvious, this should be an easy decision for any farmer to make to transition to this kind of production. But I think what you touched on is that we all need to realize that the current agricultural system that we all buy into and participate in as consumers creates huge challenges for farmers to make change on their operations. And farmers are squeezed on both sides because consumers expect and sometimes need cheap food and input costs are rising. So I think that our, our system right now has is views agriculture as an industry, right? Which it has efficiency at the top of the line in terms of importance. And rather than looking at it as an ecologically based business that needs to balance resilience and efficiency because it's necessarily interacting with natural systems, uh, including ones that are seriously out of control of a lot of farmers right now because of climate change, which they are experiencing as extreme weather. So money is going to be the most important factor for decision making in agriculture because farms are businesses and farmers need to make a living and create jobs that provide a living for people. And most producers are operating on really thin margins and are what we like to say they're risk saturated. They're dealing with so much risk every day. It can feel absolutely impossible to take another risk to make change, right? And so I think what we're looking at is about half of farm households in recent years have negative farm income every year. So that a lot of them are relying on off farm income to make ends meet. And so it's scary. It's scary to make change. It's scary to think about the fact that you might, if you adopt a whole system of new practices and you're learning how to do that, you might have reduced farm revenues for an additional transition period. And if you're coupling that, the prospective loss of revenue with this really tight financial position of most farmers, the risk is just going to be too great to change, realistically change your practices unless you have access to capital or other incentives that are going to de-risk your transition. So I think that's the biggest challenge is really getting folks to, to step out of the whole system that's really encouraging them to to maintain the status quo, to really work towards production, production, production. It's all about yields, maximizing yields, and instead think about profitability, managing the balance of yields with resilience and income with expenses 
that's just a different framework. And so encouraging farmers to, to oh, I, you're already a systems thinker. Just start, you know, th think the way in which you're thinking about your farm as an ecological system. So it's a mindset shift. So that's another big challenge. So there's a lot of barriers to overcome, but I think we're fortunate as a project in having a lot of different ways in which we can approach these barriers and try to overcome them from all these different angles, if that makes sense. Yeah, and that's a great answer. Again, just gets at the complexity of the, of the challenge that faces us, but it's obviously very worthwhile because it has to do with literally our ability to continue to feed ourselves as a society and viewing farmers as allies and you know, really recognizing the critical role that they play. They're so undervalued and we really need to be supporting them and being able to make the choices that are going to be best for their long-term profitability, right? Not just year to year or season to season, what's going to get them through. It's, I mean, what business really can function that way? It's in everybody's interest to think more long-term, but I think it's also very interesting to think about sort of who's, where the power lies in making these decisions. And right now it's not really generally in the hand of the farmers and then who who actually owns land versus who owns the land and then who has been sort of pushed out of land ownership historically over the last hundreds of years so you have the type of agriculture that that maybe would have had more of an ecological priority through indigenous and people of color owning land and the way that that was managed once now you have consolidation and really people who have to fit into the sort of industrial structure of agriculture in order to really make ends meet. Amanda, if you have anything to say on the, the idea of regenerative farming and where that maybe where that stems from. Yeah, I just was really lucky to hear a day Briones Romero talk about this then she's director of the first nations development institute and she just she spoke so eloquently about the difference between our, the way we kind of currently think about this expertise-based or simplistic transactional ways of managing land and the observational, place-based, relational, cyclical, complex, interconnected ways of knowing and understanding the natural, natural world. That's, that's a, traditionally been the ways of knowing of indigenous folks and also under-resourced farmers because that's what they had to do. And so I think we're just beginning to, to recognize that in, in our scientific ways of knowing. So the science of ecology is the very beginning of understanding that interconnectedness and looking at our farms that way, recognizing that we're not separate from these systems. We're not just the manager of these systems, but we're intimately part of them. So all of that is really key. And so and these are not new ideas, as you said, Linda, they're, they're old traditional ideas and integrating them into the way we manage land more ecologically no matter what scale we're working at, um, recognizing our relationship to that land, working to understand the cycles, relationships, the specific cycles and relationships that exist in your place, the complexities of non-living and living things, beginning with the soil, that's the foundation of regenerative agriculture. And I think we can really work to reimagine the kind of the fundamental goals of our ag agricultural systems and that they can be reflections and replications of natural systems with the goals of moving towards that balance of resilience and productivity born of those old traditional indigenous 
wisdom, but we can't do it if we keep looking at things through this very reductionist lens that's solely about production. Right. It's sort of like putting the people who know the land most intimately, those people that have had to subsist off of the land who you, <laughs> you, you figure out how to work with the system and not work against it. And I think that the broader challenges we have with our food system is that you have people who don't understand the land sort of making rules that make it much more difficult for people that do work the land for them to be able to do what they do best. So, yeah. And I think, I think that, you know, one of the downsides of the extreme productivity that we've managed to achieve, which the upside is that we're feeding a lot of people, but the downside is that we now employ a very small portion of the population in farming. And so I think we really need to work on increasing the number of farmers on the land. So we really need more farmers, not fewer farmers. And to be always thinking about that farm profitability and resilience and that balance of efficiency and resilience and increased food security and regional food systems, along with, as you said, improving access to land, financing and equity in those processes. And I think we can do all of that while building a system that still produces a lot of food while also producing all these co-benefits and reducing food waste is a huge part of that because we can be, we don't need to be quite as productive <laughs> as we're being if we reduce that waste of food. We can, we can have a little margin, I think. Well, because I think we, yes, in, in many ways we are producing a lot of food, but it's not necessarily reaching the people that need it as like we saw, which has been a problem for a long time, millions of people in the United States are food insecure, but during the pandemic, you saw people waiting in line for hours to get food. At the same time, farmers were having to throw away perfectly good milk and potatoes and produce, just turning it, you know, having to throw stuff away. And that I think is a clear symptom of a broken food system. And this is where I think the more locally based regenerative model where you are building in local loops of food production and that reaching consumers in the immediate vicinity so that you're not thrown off when a big catastrophe of something like the pandemic hits. There's more resilience built into the system. There's some other, obviously healthy soil is critical to, to resilience in our food system, but uh, what are some of the other ideas that you think would help to kind of shift us towards a more resilient system? Like what's the vision that we're aiming for? And I know the MAC is focused on one thing, but, and we can only tackle so much, but some other concepts that get at the more resilience in the food system. Well, I think one thing when we start to talk to our board of soil stewards that immediately comes up is infrastructure, improved agricultural infrastructure. And that is about rebuilding regional aggregation and processing and distribution networks, like you're saying, Linda, so that those are not so, they're not so one pathway, but that there's loops and redundancy built in that creates more resiliency. And that particularly, we're seeing that among our, our livestock producers in terms of small and mid-scale regional processing facilities for livestock. That is a huge, huge bottleneck even now. 
So that's really important, but also aggregation facilities so that smaller scale producers can sell into a broader network, can connect with larger scale buyers, including schools and hospitals and all of the folks that we would love to be able to get healthy foods to. So that's a huge piece of a regenerative food system, in addition to the waste management and waste recycling. Enhanced and streamlined conservation programs, I think. The USDA has a program called the Conservation Stewardship Program that is a tremendous program and not widely used enough. So really building on what exists there at NRCS in order to support farmers to transition to more regenerative production practices. And again, that's an on the ground practice, but I think building that into the, into the system can help build the whole system more resiliently. Also, obviously, at USDA and across the board, programming that provides support for equity, community food sovereignty, and as I was saying, that agriculture of the middle from the ground up, that's going to help us. I think the other key piece is healthy soils are really the foundation, and we, and we do want regenerative agriculture to be a big tent movement that allows farms to opt in and start and make the changes that they need. We also really believe that it can't stop with the soil. So like we can talk about all the principles that we mentioned, we can talk about biodiversity and keeping the soil covered and all of that is great. And you're shifting to a holistic system of managing your farm. And we can work on that all we want and we can create a healthy and functioning environment. But if we're doing that using labor practices that aren't equitable or just then that really isn't regenerative. And we can work on soil improvement all we want, but if the results of that work aren't addressing the social and economic challenges that farmers face, and as I said, especially those farmers of the middle, then we're not working on fully regenerative agriculture. So it's always about farm profitability, resilience, what's gonna to work to keep farmers on the land. And that includes all those things. It includes infrastructure, finance, incentive programs, and all of those other pieces that work to help improve our whole food system. I was just thinking like this just, it just stretches so far out, right? Like I, there's this piece that one of our colleagues, Ron Knox published um, a few months ago, early on in the pandemic about how consolidation in the meat processing industry has, well, I mean, it was endangering workers' lives during the pandemic because of those huge like spikes of infection rates in big slaughterhouses and just like, like, uh, <laughs> so many pieces that all fit together um, in this process, in, in this system, and like improve one piece and then it, it, it can, you know, just, it goes out in so many ways. It does. And it just, it's a matter of, I mean, the Institute for Local Self-Reliance is focused on self-reliance and you can't really have self-reliance without the ability to feed yourselves. <laughs> and our system has just gotten so big and so centralized that it really makes it vulnerable to these catastrophes that we should be preparing for, but we can never predict exactly when they're going to happen. And so another thing that, I, I, that I'm so excited about with this, this concept of building more localized food systems is the idea that it really creates an allyship between farmers and consumers because they both need each other, right? And so in, if, you, if you create smaller systems where people actually where you kind of know the farmer or you know the community that's being fed, um, that kind of builds relationships. But this concept empowers consumers in, in urban centers to participate in maintaining soil health and rebuilding soil health on farms as consumers, but also 
something like 80% of all food that's produced ends up in urban centers or will sometime in the future. So that empowers people living in cities. We get to decide basically what, what food we're purchasing, who we're purchasing it from, and then what happens with the food that might get wasted. Ideally, we wouldn't be wasting food, but if there is food waste, it should go back into the soil to continue growing food for ourselves. So I think when you kind of chip away at this really huge system and make it more localized, this is where you create opportunities to participate or create participation on both sides of the loop. Amanda, I don't know if there's anything else you wanted to add to that, but I was just going to, I see that we are running out of time. So I have a wrap up question for you if we, if we want to do that. <laughs> Yeah, sure. I just wanted to ask if there's any um, reading or resources generally that you, Amanda or or Linda too, that you want to point listeners toward. Yeah, I mean, I have so many and I'm so lucky to be able to read and listen to so much incredible stuff as part of my job. I just feel so fortunate in that way. But I, I would highlight reading about Soul Fire Farm, anything that Soul Fire Farm is doing, it's connecting African-Americans with traditional ways of farming and focusing on land access and food sovereignty and food justice and land justice. Such powerful work worth looking into for sure. Again, as I mentioned, Ade Briones Romero from the First Nations Development Institute, if you get a chance to listen to her, do. The way she talks about interacting with land and different ways of knowing incredible wisdom, powerful wisdom there. I just also listened to Kristen Leach talk about seed sovereignty and the importance of diversity of seeds. That was incredibly powerful. I love Mark Bittman's commentary on our food system. His new book, Animal Vegetable Junk, is really a good one to start with. And I, and Tom Philpott's work, his new book called Perilous Bounty, which is about um, how regenerative production can help can help uh, sustain our our American farming system or and rebuild. I think those are really powerful. Uh, what else, Linda? From a composting perspective, I just listened to a great webinar that was hosted by the Compost Research and Education Foundation, which is part of the U.S. Composting Council, and they hosted a discussion with Sally Brown from Washington University, and the concept. She's been writing a lot about the role that exogenous organic matter, which is basically like food scraps, things that come from outside of a system that get added back into the soil uh, to increase organic matter, the important role that that plays, and she kind of breaks it down. I would definitely recommend that, that webinar and more of Sally's writing on the topic, but definitely echo Soul Fire Farm, they're doing some great work, inspiring work and training for the for anybody that's interested in helping to dismantle the racism in our food system. So anybody that's interested in that should definitely check out their resources. I'm also a huge fan of James Rebanks, who is a shepherd in I Raise Sheep. So he's a shepherd in Britain and he's written a book called English Pastoral about the ways that he has regenerated his family's farm in Britain and kind of gone against the trends towards consolidation and efficiency and really seen the biodiversity on his farm and the productivity of his farm take off as a result. Um, And he writes in a very poetic and emotional, personal way and also brings in a lot of historical trends. And I just, I love James Rebanks. So Mm -hmm. he's my personal recommendation. We could go on. There's so many great um, writers, and but 
I think that just touching on Amanda, Amanda is a farmer herself. So the right person to be leading this, this charge with the million acre challenge. And I, that didn't get, I think, brought up earlier. Still very much working on my own soil health and regenerative journey though. So I, I should say that like, that's, it's really important to realize that it's, you can't snap your fingers and turn these systems on. It's something that's the journey of a lifetime and there's always more you can do. And I think one of our farmers said it best, the only, the only bad thing is not doing anything and, and you know, moving in the right direction as a farmer, that's all we can ask for is folks, folks being curious about what the next step is and trying to take that for their operations and trying to support them in every way we can. Yeah. Thank you so much. This was a great conversation and I wish we could, could keep going. We'll, we'll have to come back. We'll do it again. Yeah. Thanks, Jess. Thank you for tuning into this episode of the Building Local Power podcast from the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. You can find links to everything we discussed today by going to ilsr.org and clicking on the show page for this episode. That's ilsr.org. While you're there, you can sign up for one of our many newsletters and connect with us on social media. We hope you'll also take the opportunity to help us out with a gift that helps produce this very podcast and supports the research and resources we make available for free on our website. Finally, we ask that you let us know how we're doing with a rating or review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you find your podcasts. The show is produced by me, Jess Delfiaco, and edited by Drew Birschbach. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. For the Institute for Local Self-Reliance, I'm Jess Delfiaco, and I hope you join us again in two weeks for the next episode of Building Local Power.